This is chapter 162 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. Coming up, a fictional book about the effects of climate change that's rapidly becoming nonfiction. Then we get a physics lesson from best-selling thriller writer Brad Parks. Nearly two-thirds of Americans believe the federal government should act more aggressively to combat climate change. That's according to a Pew Research Center poll released earlier this year. However, despite those feelings, there are deep divides over what exactly is causing the planet to become warmer. In one camp are those who don't think it's a man-made problem. In the other is almost every single climate scientist in the world who agree humans are the cause. Author and academic James Lawrence Powell is attempting to sound a warning before it's too late with his book, The 2084 Report, which is a fictional look back at what he calls the Great Warming. We spoke about his sobering and frightening look at the future. Considering I'm talking to you during a week when there are wildfires raging in the West, there are hurricanes battering the Gulf Coast, your future seems to be happening now. Yes. That brings up a very uh, interesting and an important point. That is that in general, the future of climate change is happening sooner than scientists thought it would. Things that we might have projected for the 2040s or 2050s in some cases are already happening now. And uh, I think that reflects a couple of things. One is we still have not made a strenuous effort to curtail climate change, in some cases made little effort at all. And the second thing is that scientists may not fully understand all the feedback mechanisms whereby one change induces some other change, which then makes the first change worse and so on and so forth. I'm surprised and shocked and even more worried than I was when I wrote the book by what is happening uh, where I'm speaking to you from in California, the hurricanes that are already uh, running through most of the available names. So it's it's a very scary time. And I it's it. I tried to sound a warning. And I think now all many people have to do to see a warning is to listen to you, read the newspapers, or in California, just look out and see how far you can see. I guess the the, the next logical question I, I, I want to ask you then is, is it already too late to do something about it? No, and that's, that's the critical question. And um, in thinking about this book and deciding to write it, I, I was aware that there is a school of thought I'm not sure how prevalent it is now, but it was certainly prevalent 10 or 12 years ago that we should that scientists should not really level completely with the public and tell them just how bad this is going to be because they would give up. And I never have subscribed to that. Uh, I think doctors today, uh, their code is to tell patients the truth, no matter how ominous and sad it is. And I feel the same way. We have to we have to sound a warning. But in this case, unlike terminal cancer, let's say, uh, it is not too late. But it is it is about to be too late to begin, you might say, uh, because we have to reduce carbon emissions by roughly half in this decade. And we can do that 
but if we don't get going soon, uh, it is going to be too late, and the kind of future I'm portraying is going to happen. So in the book, it's uh, an oral historian who talks to people around the world in the year 2084 about the devastation that climate change has wrought from droughts to flooding to wars over water to fires. Everything seems to hinge around the 2020s being the decade when things can be turned around. So we're in that now. I guess now is the time. Yes. Now now is the time. And um, we, we have uh, examples of extreme weather already happening. Of course, we also have an example of what happens when government officials do not listen to the uh, class of scientists we call medical doctors and epidemiologists. Uh, and, and so we, we see the cost of, of delaying and not acting. And it's, it's the coronavirus is in a sense, like climate change on ultra fast forward, that is things that might take a decade with the climate or uh, hap- happen in a, a few weeks or a month. So we, we have an ample warning. But again, we have to we have to start now because there's a certain ramp up time to do what we need to do. And uh, we can't wait any longer. So where do we start? Well, where I believe we should start is that people should listen to scientists and doctors. And if they tell us to wear masks, we should wear masks. If the climate scientists say we need to act now, we need to listen to them. But of course, it is, it is the government officials who are, can actually do something about this. And therefore, I believe that before you cast a vote this November, you should ask yourself whether this candidate supports science or believes in science. And if the answer is no, and you vote for that person anyway, uh, in my opinion, you're risking your children and your grandchildren's future. You know, the the book also makes a point that this isn't just the U.S.'s problem. They're not the only ones contributing to it. There are other big countries, China and Brazil, even Japan to an extent. And then you have these smaller countries that are working towards making a difference. But in the end, it didn't matter. So if the U.S. gets on board and, and makes changes, can the tide be turned by the actions of this one country? Yes, I think it, it can be turned. Or if you turn that question around and say, can it be done without the United States? Uh, there are two reasons why it can't. One is that we're one of the biggest polluters. And if we keep polluting, uh, then, there, as you say, uh, we're going to offset the efforts of all the smaller countries and they'll, they'll simply give up. Um, and the, the second thing is that people still look to the U.S. as an example. And if we are hanging back and not doing nothing, then it's going to encourage the climate deniers in other countries. And they will say, well, we don't need to do anything either. So I think the U.S. is, is critical. Uh, if, we, if we set the, the, the tone, others will follow, and then we can turn this around. There's always a debate, too, I think, that... Um about whether little actions count, the, the, the small things that people do themselves in their daily lives to, to try to do something that's quote-unquote green, 
What's your take on that? Yeah. Do, do, the, do the little steps count or do we really, we've, we've gone past that and we're at the point where we need big actions? Well, I, I think in our personal lives, and I try to do this myself and my wife and family do, uh, we, we try to do, be as green as we can. But it's sad to say that all the small actions that people can take uh, are not going to be enough. This problem is going to take government action around the world on a scale of, say, the Manhattan Project during World War II, where it becomes the single most important thing that uh, people are, are worried about. And I think every politician ought to realize that Sometime down the road, I don't know how far, but let's say certainly by mid-century, all anyone is going to worry, wonder about in that distant period is what that particular politician did or didn't do about climate change. That is going to be the overriding issue, and we ought to recognize that that's coming, and politicians should get on the right side of this now. I find it very interesting that here in the U.S., your book is classified as a novel, but I understand that in the U.K., it's being classified as nonfiction, which <laughs> yeah. which is really interesting considering, you know, how the story is said. Why did you choose to write it in the style that you did? Well, what, what I respond when people ask me, is it fiction or nonfiction? I, I say, well, it's fiction today, but it's rapidly becoming nonfiction. And... Uh, I, I thought a lot about how to present this. Uh, it's the first fiction book I've written, and I've written several nonfiction books about geology and science. Um, and so I had to think long and hard about how you do this. And I also found writing fiction is no easier than nonfiction and in some ways harder uh, because there's a blank page staring at you and, and not much except what's going on in your head to fill it up. But uh, I was I was guided by two uh, really fine authors. One I mentioned in my uh, introduction is Studs Terkel, who was a great uh, writer of the mid-century, and he wrote a book about World War II uh, in which instead of interviewing generals and historians and presidents, he went around the country interviewing people uh, on the street, you might say, in their homes or in their farms or factories, and wrote of what had been the effect or what had happened to them during World War II. And that struck me as a way to really get the message across as to how uh, a calamity affects individual people. And then the other was Max Brooks and World War Z, uh, which wherein, wherein he was writing about a calamity that had already ended. It wasn't still happening. It was over. And uh, I, I didn't exactly imitate his approach completely, but I sort of drew on it to adopt the uh, the style and tone of the book that I did. And I might also add that when I first got interested in global warming, maybe 15 years ago, there was a sort of a bad joke. Don't worry, we'll all wear T-shirts. And... Uh, of course, that is a, a sad joke, uh, not funny at all. However, it did reflect the fact that at that time, and I think still today, most people don't really have any idea just how bad this is going to be and what effect it's going to have on their grandchildren's future. And so I decided to write a book in a little bit, uh, in somewhat the same way as World War Z, in which the 
event has already happened. We're not predicting it. It's happened. And here's what it has done to the lives of individual people. I hate to think that people who are interested in climate change and understand that this is the biggest crisis facing humankind at the moment, they will totally understand what you're trying to do with this book and they will see the scenarios that you have. New York City being flooded and the Statue of Liberty lying on its side. Rotterdam's been abandoned. New Orleans is underwater. But for those people who might not or think it's fake or don't believe the scientists or agree with the president that scientists don't know what's happening. Do you think this book will convince them? Some of them it will not convince. Uh, One of the things that we learned, another sad fact, is that when someone has a holds a strong belief and you show them that they're wrong, they double down often. And uh, there's, there's, I don't know that any book is going to correct that, but I think there are, are a lot of people in the middle. And if people will stop thinking about today's ideology and think about their grandchildren's future and think about what that future is going to be like, if only, let's say, half of what I'm portraying comes true, surely everyone loves their grandchildren. And they also love them more than their ideology. And if there's one thing I would like to get across to people, it is that if you're willing to entertain the idea that scientists are right about climate change, you have to realize that once it gets going, if we fail to slow it down and eventually stop it, it is going to keep going on and on, century after century, it's going to last for millennia. No one really knows how long it's going to last. But on our time scale, if climate change gets rolling, it's going to last for eternity. And that's what you're leaving to your grandchildren. It's a hard concept to wrap your head around because nobody ever thinks that far into the future. But we really need to start thinking that far into the future. Yes, and most of us, uh, I'm, a, I'm a senior citizen, to say the least, and I've lived through, uh, I was born during the Depression years, then came World War II, and then this and that calamity, but the, they all ended. World War II lasted, depend on, if you say it started in 1939, it lasted six years. The Depression lasted however many, eight or ten. These calamities that we're used to, are, they have an end. Of course, then there's some new calamity, unfortunately, but each one comes to an end within less than a decade, probably. That is not going to be the case with climate change. It's not going to end during your grandchildren's future or their grandchildren's future or the next generation and on and on. It's just going to keep going if we don't stop it now. And I think also that brings up another point that you point out in the book is that we have to stop thinking about how nature to act and what it used to do because we keep breaking those records and the new normal is whatever the new whatever is happening now that's the new normal it's going to be constantly changing we're never going to go back to the way things were that that's right um if we look uh let's say at at flooding uh right now uh, there's a hundred year flood line. If you live near the coast, let's say the seacoast, there's a hundred year line where uh, elevation and sea level would only say get to that one, one year in a hundred years. But that's all, that's all changing now. Uh, 
the hundred year flood line isn't the same as it used to be. It's now the 50 year flood line and pretty soon it'll be the 10 year flood line. And so all of our thinking, I was first talking about how people think about the wars and depressions, but how we think about weather is also really that if we just wait, things will go back to the way they were. Uh, we had a big heat wave here in California. It got to 117 degrees where I live a, a few weeks ago. And, of course, past thinking would say, well, OK, well, that's a freak event. And now it's going to go back and we'll never see that temperature again. But that's no longer a safe assumption because of higher temperatures and wildfires and floods and hurricanes are all much greater than they used to be. Well, we've been talking with James Lawrence Powell. His book is The 2084 Report, An Oral History of the Great Warming, a fictional book that reads a lot like nonfiction. James, thank you for you know spending some time with us today talking about it, and hopefully uh, you'll manage to uh, convince those people still on the fence that this, this is something to take seriously and something that needs to be done. Thank you, Lisa. I, I hope so. I, I've tried to sound a warning, and I hope people will heed it. I have grandchildren, too. Now, I will be the first one to tell you that science, especially physics, isn't my forte. But if best-selling thriller writer Brad Parks were my high school science teacher, I may have done a lot better. Let's just say I wouldn't have just barely passed. He deftly weaves in quantum entanglement into his missing person mystery, Interference. He tells us more about his new science thriller with a big heart. It features the wife of a physics professor uh, whose husband has gone missing. And she comes to realize that the only way to find him might be to use the very physics that he has been researching. So, Lisa, how are you for a science lesson today? Can you handle that? I am all for a science lesson. Okay, so this involves a a principle in physics called entanglement, um, which is actually a real thing, right? So every now and then, two particles can be born entangled. And when that happens, you can separate them by any distance, and they somehow remain connected to each other. You can tickle one, and the other immediately feels it. Uh, Even though, you know, you can separate them across galaxies, and this connection remains. So the the what-if that kind of drives this thriller is, well, okay, if that happens with particles... And by the way, scientists have proven it even happens with like systems of particles and, and, you know, larger molecules and whatnot. Could this, in fact, happen with human beings? Like, haven't you ever felt entangled with someone where, you know, maybe it's your friend or your sister or your lover or whoever, where something happens to them and you immediately feel it? Uh, so that is the, the principle that, that Bridget Bronick, the hero of this story, is trying to use to find her missing husband. Now, science lesson aside, there is an awful lot of quantum physics in this book. But I do have to say, <laughs> you do a really good job of making it manageable. And even somebody like me, who didn't do too well in physics in high school and really wasn't that great at math, was able to wrap their head around it. What drew you to this subject and why did you want to write about it in this way? Yeah, so the secret of my success is I also did poorly in those physics classes, Lisa. So, you know, if if I'm able to dumb it down, it's mostly because I'm dumbing it down for myself. But, you know, I think actually after struggling through high school physics in college and later on, 
I actually really fell in love with physics, not the doing of it, because I was never any good at the doing of it, but the ideas of it, um, and, and in particular, the history of physics, you know, how, how this group of people has gone about trying to explain the world that they see. And that's really all physics is. So I, I think I had been, uh, you know, as a complete amateur, interested in it for a number of years. And I'd actually tried to write this book a number of times in various forms. And I always kind of got stuck of, I, I felt like I had to fit my book to the science. Uh, and so I would, I would try to do that and it wouldn't work and I would put it down and do something else. And finally, this time around in this iteration, I went, wait a second, I know, I'll fit the science to my book. And that approach worked much better. Now, is that going to earn you the ire of physicists? <laughs> so it's a, it's a funny story. Um, I was uh, in college uh, when I was falling in love with physics. Uh, I had a buddy of mine who was a, uh, a physics major uh, and later went on to uh, get a double PhD from Harvard in physics and the history of physics and is now a professor at MIT. And he happens to be on the team of researchers that proved beyond the shadow of any doubt that entanglement actually exists. So his name is Dave Kaiser. He's a professor at MIT. And so I had sort of been following his career all along. And when they, they had this big experiment, it involved quasars and things that I can't possibly explain to you in less than a half an hour. And, uh, and so, it, you know, when he was quoted in the Times and whatnot, and inevitably he would be, I, you know, I would call him up and, 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 and tease him and whatnot. But when I got the idea for the book, all I had to do was call up Dave, and <laughs> Dave could steer me right. So I can actually more or less guarantee that the physics is right in this book. And it's not because of me, it's because of Dave. So this book is MIT physics professor approved. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure he's cringing now, but no, I actually did. I, I ran the whole manuscript by him. He had some suggestions and some notes, um, but but that's actually something I'm, I'm really kind of proud of about this book of like, I know the science is right. And yes, what the author then takes and does with the science is perhaps a little bit of poetic license, but uh, when, the, when the characters are talking to each other, when the science is being explained, it's, it's absolutely on point. So you mentioned that the book deals with this idea of quantum entanglement, but you went and called the book Interference, which is another thing in quantum physics. Was that just because you thought it was snazzier or you wanted to <laughs> mislead people? And, okay, entanglement so hard, would have hard. sounded really good, too. <laughs> Hard truth time, Lisa. I, I originally called the book Tangled, and then the the marketing department at the publishing company came back to me and said, no, there was a Disney movie by that name. You've got to come up with something else. <laughs> People would have gotten a completely different idea. <laughs> right, right, exactly. So, uh, you know, so, sometimes, uh, the, the, you know, the, the, the way titles come about is, uh, you know, the, it, it's funny the way publishing companies do it, because they never say, well, um, Jane in marketing thinks this title doesn't work. They always just refer to it as marketing. Like it's this <laughs> faceless mask. Well, marketing thinks dot, dot, dot. And from that point onward, you basically have no choice to do whatever it is marketing says. Uh, this book also dabbles with viruses, which I think is a topic mm. everyone is probably more intimately familiar with this year than they ever all, would be. Lisa. <laughs> Yeah. And it's funny because when I was writing the book, of course, this was pre-COVID. And I can remember thinking, so yes, this, one, of, one of the scary monsters in this book is 
a novel virus that our immune systems have never encountered before. And I can remember writing it thinking, well, do I need to hit this a little harder? Do people realize how scary this could potentially be? And I decided not to, because I, I was going to give my readers credit to, to know just how devastating this could potentially be. And I have to say, I'm glad I went with that decision. That that has been vindicated over time. Yeah, 100%, because I think everyone has had a crash course in 2020. Now, I've it also has... heard that you like to write at a local Hardee's, which mm. brings up the question, where did you go during the pandemic? It has been very sad, Lisa. I have, yes, for those who might be listening in the New York area, uh, Hardee's is a, uh, a Southeastern uh, tradition. Uh, they, they, one of their advertising slogans once was, eat like you mean it. Uh, and there's nothing quite as breathtaking as people who took them up on that slogan. But uh, yeah, Hardee's had became my home, my writing home for many years, uh, because basically it had no wireless internet, which is absolutely key to productivity, and it had free refills on Coke Zero, which kept me stoked with enough caffeine to also keep going. So this had become my thing for 10 years. But uh, since COVID, I have been off Hardee's. Uh, I, I just, uh, you know, on the on the off horrible chance that I might be an asymptomatic carrier, I, I didn't want to be sitting in the corner of a Hardee's fouling up the restaurant for four hours a day, which is what I tip tend to do. So I have been uh, honestly struggling to find something to replace Hardee's, though I'm always mindful of this chart that I saw uh, right when the pandemic was beginning. And it was looking at who has the most dangerous jobs. And they, and they on one axis of the chart, they, they, they plotted, you know, the, the closeness of the contact you have with other people. And on the other axis, the frequency of contact you have with other people. And like, you know, doctors and nurses and, and grocery store clerks and people like that, you know, the real heroes of this pandemic are, are all the way up in the right corner. Uh, authors were all the way down in the left corner. Uh, we were next to lumberjacks <laughs> as having the safest jobs. So as much as I miss my hearties, I am, I am forever cognizant of the fact that I still have it pretty good here. And I guess that's because, you know, I mean, I've talked to so many authors now over the years. Most of you, you're unlike a lot of them where they all prefer to hold themselves up in a room and just mm. work on their own. I am the rare extroverted author, Lisa. I, uh, I, I used to be a newspaper reporter, and, and one of the things I loved about being a newspaper reporter was I got to be out in the world and meet people and talk to them and ask them all kinds of impertinent questions. And for me, one of the hardest things about being an author is, yeah, I'm kind of just holed up by myself most of the time. So really, the moral of this story is pity my poor wife. <laughs> because she comes home every day and she's tired. She's a teacher. So she's been dealing with people all day. And, and she meets up against me, who is like this little puppy wagging his tail that she's come home. Because I'm like, honey, honey, let me tell you about this. And let me tell you about that. Let me do, I mean, the poor, poor woman. She deserves a medal or something. And how many bottles of Coke Zero have you gone through at home? <laughs> I try to, yeah, I, I try to limit myself to about, you know, between 60 and 80 ounces a day. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm pretty calm by the time she gets home, for sure. So, Brad, what's next for you? So the next book is called Unthinkable, and it's about an ordinary stay-at-home dad who is being asked to do the unthinkable or a billion people will die. Ooh. That's you a tease. Like that? That's a great tease. <laughs> There's that newspaper guy coming out. 
I actually, I, yeah, or maybe even a radio guy. Isn't that, isn't that what you guys do? You, you know, you put that after the commercial break? We Find do. out next. Yep, we do. Some of us are better at it than others. I, I can't, I don't profess to be one of those good people. <laughs> well, anyhow, it's, uh, it has been very enjoyable chatting with you. Uh, the book is called Interference. I hope everybody enjoys it. Uh, and if they do, they can find me on Facebook. They can find my website. They can find me on Twitter. I'm out there. I'm an extrovert. I'm waiting to hear from you, please. You stole my last line, so I think we will just leave it there. Brad Parks, <laughs> thank you for joining us today. Lisa, it was great being here. And that's where we close the book on this chapter. I hope you enjoyed the science lessons. Next time around, we catch up with a group of senior sleuths working to solve a murder at their upscale retirement community. Think the Scooby-Doo kids on Social Security. Until then, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich.